back to the second series of Unlocking the SDGs, a blueprint for the future. In this podcast, we explore the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, and what they really mean for society. I'm Professor Monica Lackenpaul, Professor of Integrated Community Child Health and the UCL Great Ormond Street Institute for Child Health. And I'm Professor Preeti Parikh, Professor of Infrastructure Engineering and International Development at UCL's Bartlett School of Sustainable Construction. The Sustainable Development Goals were adopted in 2015 to provide a set of global targets for the world to achieve by 2030, as we are only seven years away from the milestone of 2030. Today, we are considering what progress has been made and what might come next. What are the challenges that affect the implementation of the SDGs? How can governments respond to them And how can we use that knowledge to ensure that whatever the next phase of the goals look like, is it effective? Today, we are joined by Professor Ruth Morgan from UCL Security and Crime Science and Professor Andrea Regon from the UCL Bartlett Development Planning Unit. Then, in the next episode, we'll be looking at the goals from a slightly different perspective and speaking with Professor Sean Fox and Dr. Jessica Espy from the University of Bristol on the pioneering partnership between their university and Bristol City Council, which has put the SDGs at the heart of the city's strategic plan. We'll be exploring whether their experiences of working at local level can represent a future path for the goals. This episode was recorded in autumn 2023. So Professor Morgan, You've spoken in the past about the issues which have affected progress towards the goals, including the political landscape and barriers to scientific collaboration. In fact, you wrote an opinion piece a year ago that asked if there was sufficient time to achieve the goals. We are now a year closer to 2030. What are the main reasons that greater progress hasn't been made and how can we get closer to achieving them? Thank you. It really does focus the mind, doesn't it? Seven years and it's declining every every day. The piece that you mentioned was a piece that came about through the work that I did as part of the World Economic Forum Global Future Council on International Scientific Collaboration, which is quite a mouthful. But um, what what that um, group was tasked with doing was looking at what challenges are faced when we're looking to collaborate internationally, because challenges that uh, we have in the UN SDGs are all global, they're all complex, they all are spanning a whole range of different disciplines, different countries. They don't fit neatly into any particular boxes. They're all interconnected, they're dynamic and evolving. So how can we get the science that we need to help solve them? It needs to be an international collaboration effort. And what emerged from that work, we consulted with a whole range of different partners and stakeholders was that there are probably three big major barriers to that international collaboration focusing on those complex global challenges. The first one's funding. The second one was around how can we balance an openness in science and and data sharing with the considerations around security. And then the third one was really looking at how can we make sure that we have um, the infrastructures that allow us to do that collaboration work in a sustainable and ongoing way. So I think it's just quite interesting when you think about you know the, the times that we're living in in terms of the geopolitical tensions, but also the financial constraints. It's often international collaboration research funding that is 
is cut before other things are cut. Um, and we've seen that happen in the UK and also in the US in the last couple of years. And I think the openness one's a really interesting one as well. So the pandemic showed us that open source data was absolutely critical to getting that, the vaccines developed as quickly as they were and being able to surveil um, the virus as it as it was moving um, throughout different um, countries and, and across the world. And so those kinds of open data repositories are going to be absolutely critical to tackling big challenges like climate or biodiversity. But there are security issues and, and the geopolitical situation is what it is. And that needs to be considered in terms of how we can build the trust that's needed between countries to ensure that these open source data sets are available and helping us get where we need to get to. And then I guess the other thing that the pandemic showed us was the the way that we collaborate doesn't have to be the, the, the very traditional way of everybody being in a single place at a single time. But that does need platforms, it does need infrastructures. But the benefits are huge because it increases the representation in those collaborations, it increases the diversity. And all the research shows that the more diverse groups that you have working on challenges, the further you get, the quicker you get. So I think that that was the sort of outcomes in terms of what the barriers are. Absolutely, Ru. Thank you for highlighting the point of openness, because as you have highlighted, the goals are interconnected. And if we want to work on improving interconnectedness on a complex system problem, we need expertise from all disciplines, which means we need openness and sharing of knowledge and information. So thank you for rightly highlighting key barriers. And Risa, also, I, to be very honest, I'd never really considered the security issues uh, and, and link them to the SDGs. So that's an, an important angle, really, I think, for us to consider. In theory, it would seem like there's widespread agreement on the underlying principles, but really translating that into action is proving frustratingly slow. For example, Rishi Sunak, recently rode back on the UK's commitment to net zero, which I'm sure many thought were contrary to the efforts the world needs to make to reduce carbon emissions. So thinking about that and other other challenges in a similar way, what options do we really have to ensure that countries don't jeopardise their own progress against the goals? It's such a tricky one. I think because these are global goals, they can only be addressed if we tackle them together. But at the same time, they can feel so big and the, sort of the role of a, an individual or, or a single country can feel like a very small drop in a very large ocean. So getting that sort of urgency and corporate approach to it does seem, really, as you say, really, really challenging. I, I think that means we've got to think quite broadly. One of the things that came to mind as we were sort of grappling with this as part of that project that I mentioned was how could we address the funding issue in a way that really labours the point that this is a a corporate endeavour, that we have to do this together, that no single nation, no single group, no single discipline can actually get where we need to go. And so we put forward this idea that if we could create a global fund that was administered at that global level, maybe that could help us in accelerating the work that's, that's happening and the impact that that work is happening in terms of addressing the SDGs given the rapidly advancing 2030 deadline. And what we did is we calculated that if the G7 and the EU could commit 1% of the funding that they'd already committed to spending on research and development, that would create um, £14 billion a year as a global fund that could then be used to underwrite and, and fund international collaborative efforts in terms of the R&D and the science part of this that is needed. It would 
create an opportunity to have a much more diverse portfolio of projects. So yes, having those long-term funding opportunities available, which I think are incredibly important when we're looking at some of these challenges. These are not things that you can fix quickly, but also having those sort of agile, uh, rapid response calls that allow quite innovative ideas to be tried and tested and if necessary, fail quickly so that you can keep that momentum going and give that sense of, of, of progress, uh, which is very encouraging, I think, when you're in that, in, the, in that space. So I think, I think that could be one way, having a global capacity to fund things with a corporate agenda. And I guess the other thing is it trust. How can we really redouble our efforts in building trust between institutions, between, between nations, so that we can make progress, and it's and it's also not just them. Is it? It's it's the it's the trust be- between researchers and the public. To what degree do the public trust that the work that's happening is going to have agency, is going to change things for the better? Is representative of all those who are involved in the communities that these challenges impact. That's a tricky one, isn't it? Because <laughs> tra- trust is something that takes a long time to build, but can be lost in a, in a moment. But I think thinking at the global scale, one of the things I wonder about is whether there could be thinking about how do we reward and, and incentivize researchers and research institutions to contribute to these kinds of collaborative endeavors. And there are lots of great activities and great initiatives out there at the moment. So, so the DORA initiative is a, is a really good example, I think, of um, prim- trying to bring together global institutions to reward and incentivize and to celebrate a broad range of excellence that's not simply measurable with specific metrics. And I guess this was, um, in some ways, one of the sort of inspirations behind the uh, one million, a hundred million idea that I worked on with a whole range of scientists who are part of the World Economic Forum. So scientists from all over the world, a whole range of disciplines. What it boiled down to was, what if we could get one million scientists, which is about 10% of the world's active researchers in the science community, to be able to devote a nominal two hours of their work, working week, about 5% of the week, to, to activities that could be outside of perhaps what we might normally expect a scientist to do. So building relationships and collaborations with those outside of their discipline or outside of their institution, um, working with people in government or industry or business or charity sector. What if that could happen in this way? That would create essentially 100 million hours of a year that was devoted to this kind of network building and building of trust that would enable collaborative efforts. And if we could enable that to happen at all career stages, so not just the preserve, the, the more senior academic, all career stages, that has the potential to really create quite a lot of momentum going into the future in terms of well-serviced, well-established networks of trust where that collaboration could come from. So idealistic probably, but just a couple of ideas of things that I think could help us in that um, endeavour to really get this collaboration happening, the funding of it, and also building that base trust network. Thank you. Actually, I hope building trust or relationships isn't idealistic. You know, I think it's you know critically important that all researchers and scientists actually feel it's at the core of what they do and it's their responsibility. Um, you know, our responsibility isn't just to produce data as it, it is about building networks, um, engaging and and sharing, like you talk about open access, sharing what we find. And if we need to put it formally into, uh, you know, our, our weekly work, 
that's one way of doing it. And I like the way you actually say, you know, two hours a week, that's what we really need, just so that people can see the effort and time it takes to do this um, building of trust and relationship building. Absolutely. And Ruth, I like the point you're making that if you're serious about this, let's put time and money into it. Let's put invest serious investment into it, resources, human resources into the SDGs, because this is absolutely important. And as you know, the SDGs themselves succeeded the Millennium Development Goals and were intended to be an ambitious agenda for change. However, it seems likely that uh, future targets will have similar objectives, such as addressing climate change, inequity, sustainable growth, and topics that you have highlighted as well today. Do you think we can really build further on the current SDGs? Or in your opinion, what do you think the evolution of the goals will look like? An amazing question. I think there are so many times in my life where I wish I had a crystal ball. I'm not definitely, definitely one of them. I, I think the answer is I don't know. I think there's so many things in play, so many different um, factors. And often prediction is, is, is quite a tricky one, isn't it? But I guess in terms of keeping us on track to achieve the broad goals that I think the UN SDGs are incredibly effective at, at showcasing and illustrating. It's actually quite remarkable, isn't it, how, how broad and diverse they are, how many parts of life we cover, um, and yet how approachable it is in terms of how, how it's been presented, which I think is just incredible. But what would what would keep us on track? What would keep us going towards that ultimate um, view that is creating a, a world that is more equitable and and thriving? And I think you mentioned it earlier, actually, this this idea that what underpins an awful lot of the different areas that the SDGs touch on is interconnectedness. So um, access to healthcare and education, for example, is completely contingent. On the security within a within a place and uh, safety, in terms of being able to access those um, capabilities, and so I think it would be really great if, you know, as as they develop, we could see more of an acknowledgement on the importance of approaches that really address both the kind of the really explicit and immediate presenting issues, whether that's affordable energy or clean water, but also those tacit ones where they're often quite hidden. But actually, they underpin so many things, whether that's um, reducing inequality or ensuring peace and justice. And I think it's becoming really clear how how prevalent having those fundamental basics are for enabling us to actually make progress in, in other areas. We need to be able to understand regional and cultural diversity. There are an awful lot of hurdles and, and blockers in lots of ways that really stem from the fact that we are people that we live in community and we have cultural narratives we tell stories about things and what's happening in terms of those stories often impacts how we behave and, and what is possible so thinking about how we can really tap into an understanding of the place and the history the culture of the context i think again is quite a long way and i suppose adding to that really is this idea that anything that we do i think in increasingly so now probably we do need to make sure that we're thinking about technology and people together. So I think it's often it's quite tempting to be able to say, oh, I mean, this is a particular issue in terms of access to, to clean water. There's a technological fix for that. Let's focus on that. But actually, if you do that without an understanding of the people, it may well not be an outcome that actually works and that is actually sustainable. So we need to be thinking about how we can understand technologies in terms of their capabilities now and their potential future capabilities also understanding how humans 
make decisions on how they see the world and how we behave alongside an understanding of the economic structures that these things have got to operate within um, and, and the value structures that are so deeply embedded into all of this, whether that's sort of cultural value or financial value. And if you can weave all of those bits together, I think you're beginning to get somewhere quite interesting. So yeah, I think interconnectedness and acknowledging the both the explicit and the tacit parts needs to be part of what it looks like going forward. You're setting quite a challenge for groups who are considering uh, the future goals uh, because they need to make sure it uh, includes kind of the hidden tacit knowledge. It includes an understanding of society, culture. People need to be at the heart of the decision-making processes uh, to make sure the goals are truly embedded and delivered for well-being. And what you've really touched on is interdisciplinary working and if possible we move to a transdisciplinary way of working and putting arts and sciences and to, to working together in team science and recognizing the role of arts and humanities and that really brings us nicely to our next guest and I'm pleased now to welcome Professor Andrea Regon. You've worked in the past in participatory research design and that's very very close to my heart with my own work and you've done that really to involve communities at a grassroots level in developing initiatives. We have discussed in the past the importance of working with communities to ensure their voices are heard in the conversation and they're not hidden from the conversation but can make an active participation in these important decisions that we are trying to tackle and the goals we're trying to achieve. So what's your perspective on how participatory design could play a role in the next phase of the goals? Thank you very much. I was part of a project that was using participatory research with the sum of the world's poorest communities to co-produce knowledge to influence what were the initial negotiation of the Sustainable Development Goals. And from the initial discussion in 2012, until the approval of the final text three years later, the negotiation process of this agenda has been probably the most participated in the UN history. And it was a massive change, for example, from the Millennium Development Goals, which were written by a couple of people in the UN basement in New York. And then after this work, I worked to develop a participatory methodology to actually help civil society organization in four African countries to contribute to their country's SDG reporting process. And this initial work to shape the negotiation of the SDGs involved developing participatory methodologies able to work at scale. And the big champion of this work was the UK government that was a co-chair of the high-level panel that was commissioned by the UN Secretary General to work on a first document. And with the UN government support, we provided lots of evidence on the priorities of those living in poverty. And this involved thinking to the epistemological and the ethical challenges of synthesizing what is very contextual knowledge producing community into global policy messages to then create one global agenda. And this was done through participatory video, digital storytelling, and lots of other methodologies. And this also including creating ground level panels where citizens would discuss and assess the initial policy proposals produced by the high level panel in charge of this preliminary document. And the attempt was also made in this process to help policymakers to understand the social reality of the poor through workshop, but also through sharing the, the daily lives with poor households. 
And for example, making an example, the SDG main message that now is unquestionably leaving no one behind, that originated by the words of research participants of one of our research partners. And this is the evidence of the need to expose policymakers to the experiences and stories of those living in poverty. And this process of using participatory knowledge from the ground must continue in the design of future agenda. But this is not enough. Despite the massive opening in terms of consultation in setting the SDGs, there was little room for the role of participatory research for its, and for its inclusion as a key component of the policy design process. Therefore, for me, the next step would be towards participatory policy making, where citizens are directly involved in the policy making process without leaving the policy making process to just professional diplomats. And this is incredibly difficult because the way the UN system works as an intergovernmental process, it's completely different. There, the actors are the countries, and the assumption is that the countries represent their own people. So there's no need, as long as I have my ambassador at the UN General Assembly, that that's enough. And I think to, to challenge that and to challenge that is going to be quite uh, a different way of thinking. And I believe that some mediation can be found and that we desperately need uh, methodological experimentation on citizen participation to build agendas able to deal with the intractable global challenges that we face now, for example, uh, climate change. Thank you. I think, like you said, you know, there's a, there's a move where we have to change the way people think. People aren't really used to this participatory methodology. And I think some people are a little bit frightened about it. I was just wondering, as an add-on, policymakers sometimes engage with this process, sometimes go, don't engage with this process. Just briefly, what did you really find about how the policymakers felt about embracing or engaging with participatory methodology? It was fantastic, for example, to see when they were involved as individuals uh, in workshop spaces that where they felt safe and where they exposed to this evidence coming from the ground, we had a fantastic response. We had people really making those empathetic connections, really getting that sort of understanding. But unfortunately, then that's, of course, that there's that uh, internal struggle between then be an ambassador having to represent an official government position of a specific countries. But I felt we were able to get quite close to some of these policymakers that were more open and that kind of open up spaces to then bring in some of these messages, including, for example, the main motto of the SDGs and lots of other little bits that we find in the SDGs that came from precisely directly the voices of those living in, uh, in poverty. Well, I, I, for one, would love to learn more about how we could apply that to different areas, even here in the UK, and ensuring our policymakers work in partnership with this participatory design as well. And I think those participatory processes and having those voices is important, not just as a one-off, but a more dynamic and iterative process. Because we live in a world with conflict and we suffer from shocks and stresses as we speak. And in fact, in one of our previous episodes, we talked about how responsive or not the goals are to changing circumstances and how issues like natural disasters economic uncertainty have affected progress against the goals. Well, 
While UCL's academics and researchers are playing a leading role in responding to the challenges set out by the goals, our students are also helping to achieve the SDGs. We spoke to some of our students to get their thoughts on the SDGs and how they're being addressed around the world. Today, we are asking the question, if you could bring in one legal or societal shift to help the UK address the SDGs, what would it be? My name is Susanna Chen. I am a second year undergraduate student in UCL's Department of Arts and Sciences. If I could suggest a change to help the UK achieve the SDGs, is to make sure accessibility is thoroughly considered when planning and constructing infrastructures. Going forward, I think efforts could be made to make sure things like accessible entrances and exits are included from the start in plans to construct new buildings. And we can also make sure any green energy transitions consider disabled people who might depend on higher levels of energy. I am Alexander Ignatiev and I'm studying in UCL's Institute of Epidemiology and Healthcare. The one change that the UK needs to make to help it achieve the SDGs is implementing a comprehensive Green Deal policy, strategy or a similar program like the European Green Deal initiative, for example, focusing on transitioning the UK to a sustainable, low-carbon economy while promoting social and economic justice. Are there areas where progress has been better than anticipated? Why have you been more successful in those areas, Andrea? Yeah, I think that the greatest success, in my opinion, is the spread of the SDG language across all sectors of society, because this is creating a global normative direction, a sort of global consensus towards the direction. And this seems to be very little, but I think it's it's already quite quite a lot and quite impressive. For example, I've become aware that in some countries, academics have to report their work against the SDG goals, for example. In a way, it gives people a hook to advance very important conversation. However, I can't hide the fact that actual progress has been quite limited. But this is not a fault of the SDG. It is caused, among other issues, by global tensions, the refuse of the global north to redress its historical responsibilities with adequate funding and other issues. But in a sense, the SDG are successful in pointing out that we are not progressing well uh, and that we could have progressed better. Without them, it would be very difficult to make this severe assessment and make an urgent call of action. So in a way, they are a benchmark saying we should be doing more and better and faster. And in this sense, I share the words of the UN Secretary General this year who said, Unless we act now, the 2030 agenda will become an epitaph for a world that might have been. I like your words, we have to act now and we all have to act together. And you are right, the 17 goals and 169 targets have really brought us all together, have been excellent in bringing nations together to identify issues, gaps which need to be tackled. It's also interesting that you raise the idea that we should all be considering the SDGs in our projects and our publications really so that we keep a focus on them. And only recently I was in Brazil where I was at a university, which I, I was trying to really share that vision with them to enable them to think about everything that they were doing in their transdisciplinary teams to ensure that they focused on the SDGs when they thought about the projects that they were going to do. So I think that's a really key point that we have to keep reminding people of if we want to 
enable us to keep SDGs at the center of our work. But some would say that one of the strengths of the goals is that they provide a framework for organizations outside of governments as well, such as universities like our own, NGOs and businesses, to focus their impact for public benefit, just as I've said. So what role should these organizations have in achieving the goals, do you think, as well as influencing what comes after? Yes, I want to go a little bit back on why we have this agenda and what happened when, uh, when this agenda was put together. So when the Millennium Development Goals were coming to an end, there's been a process to consult global civil society in the global south on whether having a global framework was good or not and why. And the response, which I think still applies to the SDG, was that despite their shortcomings, these agenda are useful. And their main contribution is that they provide this flexible framework and this common language Then civil society can use both and civil society, but also the private sector, to directly contribute to sustainable development, that point about focusing the efforts, but also to make a claim and engage government at different levels. In other words, it creates a framework for discussion and dialogue on how society should shape its future. And I think one important change with the Sustainable Development Goals compared to the previous framework is incredibly comprehensive. At the end, the idea was we are not really capable of prioritizing some sectors over others. So let's put all of them inside and then let countries and organizations to really identify what are their priorities within this incredibly comprehensive framework. So even more, what I think it does is creating this space for dialogue that then every state, every nation, every city is using in a way to reflect and having this conversation about what should be our priorities how we are doing compared to others. In a way, it's like a global language, isn't it? This framework enables people across the world to talk one language and have one meaning and different approaches, different contexts, but still a common language for us all. I like the phrase common language and bringing us all together to address global challenges. And at the moment, we have 17 goals. In our podcast series, we've been discussing uh, whether we need an 18th goal and what would that look like. So, Andrea, in your opinion, what are the areas that should be considered for inclusion? If you had the power to create an 18th goal, what would it be? Yeah, I think the 18th goal for me would be a sort of reflexive goal that would look back at the transformative principle of the agenda that are often forgotten uh, when we look at the goals in silos. Very often, UN documents, they have a very specific parts with targets and objectives, but they also have the previous parts where the sense and, and the meaning and the trajectory and the more aspirational part of the agenda is presented. And I think for this agenda, that those principles are extremely progressive ambitions and are still relevant seven years after. And the main progress, I think, in the SDG so far was achieved when we look at the synergy between different goals and targets. And the transformatory principles of the agenda can help us identifying this interconnection. And it's one we overlook them in the implementation that we fail to achieve the transformational potential of this agenda, which we just limit to the sort of quantitative understanding of a specific sector and uh, giving sort of rewards if you achieve that or not without looking where achieving all those targets should bring us. And I just want to summarize what I think are four of these uh, main pre transformatory principles that are containing the agenda. 
The first is a commitment to leave no one behind. And this was completely different in this agenda compared to any previous framework. This means ensuring that everyone reaches minimum standards, putting the most vulnerable groups at the center of policymaking and tackling, and tackling the discrimination that different individuals and groups face. Then there is an emphasis on tackling inequalities, challenging inequalities in societies around how wealth, power, and opportunities are distributed and addressing discrimination faced by certain groups. Then there is a third one that is about integrating the environment and development, encouraging development processes that support and restore our shared planet so that it can provide for the needs of both present and future generation. And I think that's that element of looking at future generation, I think, is also quite innovative for the agenda. And finally, there is a more methodological transformatory principle that is around promoting people's participation in dialogue, ensuring that women and men are able to participate in ongoing dialogue and contribute to decision-making with regard to development priorities, policies, and programs. Thank you for setting up potentially an ambitious and transformative ATIT goal and also unpacking what you think are the key principles. I mean, the one of leaving no one behind is absolutely key and I think forms the cornerstone really of the current SDGs, but I hope remains the cornerstone of the future goals in whatever form or shape they take. Ruth, I'm now going to circle back to you with the same question. If you had the power to create an ATIT goal, what were the areas you'd like to see included, which you feel might be missing from the current SDGs. Thank you. I, I think Andrea's ideas are, are fantastic. And I promise you, we didn't get into cahoots on this because I think where I'm coming from is, is, is similar. It's, it's allied anyway. Um, and I guess that reflects probably the sort of the ethos that we have across um, across college here. But I think we, should, we need a, a real focus on interdisciplinarity. I think we need to think about how we can weave interdisciplinary thinking and I'd, whether that could be a an 18th goal, um, that feels quite lofty, but I think that would be quite exciting because interdisciplinary thinking is often is a word we often use, but I think it's incredibly difficult to actually do. And that's, there's a whole range of different reasons why that might be, and a lot of ink's been spilt on that. But it strikes me that because we've got such a scope and um, leaving nobody behind across the entire um, piece, we need to have the capacity to be able to support and encourage those who can develop that really deep specialist expertise in particular, niche areas, because that's going to be absolutely critical. Um, but we also need the capacity for multidisciplinary teams who are going to be able to come together on particular challenges, like we see quite often actually in, in engineering and, and in medicine. Um, but we also need to have these interdisciplinary approaches and, and maybe even the transdisciplinary as well. Um, how can we view challenges in ways that bring science, social science, engineering, arts and humanities all together and get comfortable being uncomfortable at those intersections and exploring those areas and creating spaces where it's possible to ask what might seem like silly questions, but actually often open up challenges into completely new areas that we would never have got to if we were following our conventional approaches. And I guess, I guess you know, AI is a big topic at the moment, isn't it? It feels like it's going to be touching absolutely everything um, no, no part of society is going to be immune to um, engaging with AI and its emerging capabilities. But I think if you just that's, a, that's quite a nice example because if you think about AI, there's clearly a really big science and technology component to that, which we've got to get our heads around. 
But we've also got to be thinking about sort of current term, midterm, and long term implications of that capability. Uh, we've got to be thinking at different scales, you know, the, the, the micro scale, the meso scale, the individual, the corporate. We've got to be thinking about what are the cultural narratives around um, this new new capability that's coming in. Well, it's actually quite an old capability, but the iterations of it that are coming through now. How can we understand the history of AI itself, but also the history in our in our societies? How can we um, think about environmental and economic systems that are going to be impacted by the development of AI? And I, I appreciate that's a very tiny fraction of the number of facets to that particular diamond, but it hopefully gives a sense, I think, of why creating opportunities for both expert specialist knowledge and that synthesizing more lateral um, approach to things in combination could potentially be quite revolutionary. Absolutely. I mean, an 18th goal of interdisciplinarity would be really exciting. And AI is a good example because in AI, we think about technology, but it has an impact on culture, society. What about the ethics of using data at scale? At ethics, I think, is going to be a big discussion point in AI. But it really hones into the point that we need interdisciplinarity, we need interdisciplinary experts to join forces to consider the implication of technological shifts, but also the grand challenges facing us. And I have to say to both of you, Andrea and Ruth, you've really raised the bar high on what the 18th goal could look like. So today we've really covered some key areas and I thank you both really for joining us and sharing your insights and views and experience with us. We've looked at some issues around common language, the importance of the SDG as a framework, security issues as well, and the need for investment. Also, the role of participatory approaches with policymakers. And let's see where AI takes us and whether it is what it seems to be and does achieve what we all want it to. But thank you again for joining us today. Before you go, I'd like to ask you, where can listeners find you online, on Twitter or social media? Sure, thank you. So my Twitter handle is at Prof Ruth Morgan, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. And I'm on Twitter, if that still exists, or X, at uh, Rigonandre, that's R-I-G-O-N-A-N-D-R-E. You've been listening to Unlocking the SDGs. This episode was presented by me, Professor Monica Lackenpaul. And me, Professor Preeti Parikh. And produced by the UCL SDGs Initiative and edited by Frontier. Our guests today were Professor Ruth Morgan and Professor Andrea Rigon. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from UCL, subscribe to UCL Minds wherever you download your podcasts or visit www.ucl.ac.uk slash SDG. Join us next time on Unlocking the SDGs. Mm-hmm.